Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumi, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception to acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. On today's show, I have a very special guest, an industry expert, Dr. Ben Letalian from Franchise Well. He is the founder and principal and one of the few doctorates in franchising. Ben, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks. It has been a long time since I've seen you. It is it is so great to have you on the show. And uh, we have an awful lot to cover about franchising and looking forward to getting your thoughts. Excellent. Thank you. Great, great to be here and great to see you again. Uh, obviously, uh, we we met uh, way back when and, <laughs> and been awesome to see what you've done in franchising and uh, amazing journey and amazing company and uh, great to be here on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. So I want to get started here by let's share with the audience a little bit about your journey and background and how you got started. And how many years ago was that, by the way? 1987, (laughs) to be exact. Wow. Um, And how did it all get started for you? Yeah, I was in the banking industry coming out of college. Uh, We used to process these pieces of paper called checks. Nobody (laughs) uses them anymore. but, But in the day, Everybody wrote a check for everything and billions of checks had to be processed. And so I ran a data shop and we processed all the checks for 63 banks and nine savings and loans. So I had a whole team of people that all they did was, you know, checks had to go through these big machines at 35 miles an hour and get encoded and microfished and all this stuff. So that's kind of the track I was on. And I was also restoring a, 69 Oldsmobile and uh, this friends of ours, an older gentleman, um, the friends of our family, whatever, he, he reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this friend. Uh, he's an attorney. He invested in his niece's husband's company and it was a, a franchise apparently and something's gone terribly wrong. All the franchisees have stopped paying royalty and uh, and so now, like the the niece and the husband and all the staff are, are all gone and just kind of left it on this guy. And so they've got, you know, he's got a loan, he's got a lease and he's got a company he knows nothing about. Could you meet with him? And I'm looking at him going, why? I'm in the banking industry. What do you, what do you want me to do? Right. And he's, yeah, I, I said, I don't really think about franchising. And and he said, well, you're you know about cars, the business he's in is is in automotive paint touch-up where they they have this patented formula they go to these car dealers and they touch up rock chips and scratches and apparently it's very profitable so i don't know what happened would you just please talk to them you know <laughs> as a favor you were basically rebuilding an old 69 Oldsmobile. yeah yeah and, and so he knew i was into cars okay so he thought i could relate to the underlying business and so he said, hey, why don't you talk to, to Ben? So he, he connected us. Turns out he was the head litigator at Baker Botts, which is, you know, Secretary of State James Baker's company. And uh, 
he, he didn't have the slightest interest whatsoever in being involved in an automotive paint touch-up or a franchise company. He was just sold on the idea from his niece, his husband, basically. And as it turns out, they did have a patent on how to paint a chip the same color as the car and then remove all the overspray without lifting the paint out of the chip. And it made it virtually disappear. Wow. So what happened was I, I looked into the company and looked at what they were doing. So this is an amazing company. Matter of fact, I thought to myself, it's like a bird's nest on the ground. You know, if you have a brand new Porsche, right? And you, you come home and you see this rock chip on the hood, it's going to drive you nuts. You're, that's all you're going to see of course. every time you walk out to the garage. <laughs> if I can make that go away for 60 bucks or a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. you're, you know, instead of having the whole hood painted, you're like, that's awesome. So long story short, I said, this is an amazing business. I don't know what happened, but l- let me call, you know, some of the franchisees and, and find out. And it was amazing. I talked to, they, they had about, I think, 10 franchisees uh, in various stages of like just getting started and not even open and operating to been in it for a year or a year and a half. So it's fairly new, emerging concept. I called up the the largest franchisee. They've been in the longest. And he said, you know, they, they promised us the paint codes, right? The new codes come out on the cars and they never send us the updates. I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'm sure we can, we can fix that. A newsletter. They said we'd have a newsletter. We have no idea, you know, what's going on, how anybody else is doing. They said, we're going to have a convention and get everybody together. They never did. So he gives me this list of about 12 things. All easy stuff. And I'm looking at the list going, this is like dripping faucet stuff. This is not like, (laughs) I said, well, listen, well, if, if I can get all of this taken care of for you, could you get all the franchisees together and get them to start paying royalties again? Because we can't operate without income. But, you know, we, we can fix this. We can. This is a great business. I'm in the car business. Now. I know cars. And, and I'm telling you, and he says, oh, I know it's a great business. I'm killing it out here. He was doing like $100,000 a month wow. in paint touch-up. And so I go back to the guy and he's like, look... I don't even want this thing. If you just get the note paid off at the bank mm-hmm. and you get the, the lease taken care of, you could have the company. No way. <laughs> I was 28 years old. I was going to say, I knew you he, were a young guy. I I knew he that. Just turned it, like... it over and said, go for it, you know? So I, my wife had a great job. She had benefits and all that stuff. And I said, honey, you know, I don't know anything about franchising, <laughs> but I'm taking over this company and, and we're going to go to town. So I called the IFA, 1987. And okay. I said, hey, I, I I took over this franchise company and I need to learn, you know, what what is franchise? How is it supposed to work? What's, <laughs> the, you know, and, and they said, well, we don't really have any education programs. Um, you can certainly come to our annual convention if you're a franchisor, but uh, you're in Houston, right? And I said, yeah. And I said, well, there's a guy up in Waco, Texas, Don Dwyer, oh. and he knows franchising. You know, if I were you, I would go talk to him. <laughs> So I literally got in my car and drove to Waco. No appointment. No, no. Back then, you know, cell right. phone was like a big bag, like right. shoe bag thing. <laughs> Very few people even had them. Right. I drove to his office, walked in. Receptionist asked me if why I was. I said, well, I would like to meet with Don Dwyer. I talked to the IFA and they recommended, you know, I talked to him. Mm-hmm. Do you have an appointment? No, but I'm happy to sit here if, if he does have any time uh, and, and just wait. And so a little while later, he comes walking out with his big cowboy hat, belt buckle, and his boots. And, right. 
And he's like, I hear you're in the franchise business. <laughs> Apparently I am. Yes. And I don't have the slightest idea what that means. So we sat in his office for about three hours and he just, just shared his story, his what he's learned and, and what franchising was to him. And the one thing he told me that um, really set me on a path to be in franchising my whole career, um, he said, if you let someone sign a franchise agreement, put it in the drawer, close the drawer, don't ever open it again. Your job is to make sure they're successful. I was like, wow. Okay, if that's if that's how this is supposed to work. So what he was conveying was that it's a relationship business, right? Yes, there's a contract. And yes, if we have to get into that, you know, in his opinion, we've already lost the relationship, right? So, right. you know, regardless of whether I'm required to come visit you or not, if I need to come visit you, I'm going to come visit you. If I'm re not required to provide you with this marketing support, but I need to, I should do it, right? I shouldn't be legalistic about it, but I should really focus on the relationship. And, and the other piece was don't just sell franchises to anybody that wants one. Sell them to people that you want to spend the next 10 years of your life in a relationship with. And if you don't see that, don't do it. And so those were really two key things. So I went back to Houston. I met with all the franchisees. I built a team and we started taking care of all those dripping faucets. At the same time, launching the local business ourselves because i knew that you know business very well and and it just exploded we were in 22 states and three canadian provinces in less than three years wow it just went crazy and i absolutely fell in love with franchising primarily because i would meet these people they would learn about the business and then they would invest with us by buying a franchise and we would help them get up and operating and support them and off they would go then my staff started leaving. The people I had hired to help build the franchise started buying franchises and moving <laughs> around the country, you know, because it was such a great business. And then about three and a half years in, my largest competitor called and said, you know, I'm tired of kind of banging heads with you. I'm just going to buy you out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My company's not for sale. I, I, I dream about this all night. I eat it for breakfast. This is what I do. Right. And he said, well, Here's what I'm going to pay you. And I thought, I can find something else to do. Yeah, that's, again, learned like, wow, franchise businesses are valued differently than, than what I expected. And so that set me on a trajectory of launching four additional franchise companies after that and scaling them to some level to where someone wanted to buy it, right? And, mm -hmm. and my intention was never to sell them. It's just somebody came along and said, I want this. And so... We did a, a mall food court concept for Lottie Cafe. It was 130 units in three years. Uh, so it was really this kind of surreal environment where whatever the concept was, I was fully immersed in it. And I was all about it. And then there was a transaction and I found myself looking for another concept to franchise. Most of these were entrepreneurs that had a good underlying business and I would come alongside partner with them and franchise the concept. And, and I really developed a thirst for understanding franchising. I noticed that we had lots of different categories. We got automotive, we had food service. I'm like wondering, you know, is franchising different if you're in the automotive, if you're in the food service, if you're in the healthcare, if you're in fitness, you know, what, what are the, what if you're a service business versus a brick and mortar? So I started 
doing research on the franchise model and first of all found that there isn't uh, or wasn't at that time a lot of research and it, it it eventually compelled me to seek a doctorate program focused on the franchise model which i completed in 2012 at the university of maryland i started teaching franchising initially at georgetown university um, they had a in continuing education department. I met through a mutual friend, the guy that ran it, and he said, you know, they were looking for additional programming to offer, continuing, you know, professional education. And I said, well, what about a franchise program? He's like, I do you think it's would work? I mean, he's like, I said, yeah. And I told him about the industry, mm-hmm. you know, which a lot of people don't think it is, but to somebody not in franchising, it, it you know, they understand right. that. So but, he, but he's like, wow, I had no idea. There were so many franchises and so many franchise companies and these businesses I go to are franchises. So he gave me kind of carte blanche to create the uh, Certificate in Franchise Management Program at Georgetown University in 2009 and uh, been teaching it. I have thousands of graduates from all over the world. We've had over 30 countries, you know, people send people over. Matter of fact, you talked to Jake you know, mm-hmm. Rankin recently, one of my graduates, run into them all the time. They're, they're all over. And um, and so I've been teaching franchising for um, a good while. And then most recently, Dave and Gail Leniger, the co-founders of Remax, yeah. uh, did an endowment at the University of Denver for the Leniger Center on Franchising and asked me to be the faculty. Uh, and so I created the courses and we launched those this past summer. And so really excited to be giving back through the education component um, in franchise. That is, that is so exciting, Ben. And you know, you are so, obviously you're so well known in the industry as being this great educator and academic in franchising and somebody so with a unique background. I didn't know anything about how you started in franchising. <laughs> I knew nothing about the automotive side of the business and, <laughs> and, and, and how you really got started. You are like all the rest of us when it comes to franchising is that franchising found us, right? That's the phrase we hear all the time. Nobody looks to franchise, get involved in the industry, at least back way back when. No, more, more (laughs) so now, you know, you've got students at uh, Palm beach Atlantic in the franchise program they have, and they're coming out. Several of their graduates have come out buying franchises uh, and working in the franchise industry. So it's becoming much more, mainstream back in late 80s early 90s it was it was the wild wild west in many cases so franchisees couldn't go to the convention i mean it was not the most inclusive group that i was ever involved with but wow it's really changed i'm I'm just so proud to be involved in franchising because it is one of the most diverse business models on the planet and it really has opened a lot of doors for business ownership that just weren't there. And and so really exciting to see how it's evolved, uh, especially over the last 15 years. Mm. Aside from, of course, there's so much development in technology and resources, but besides that, has franchising changed a whole lot from 1987 to 2023? Well, that's a very great question. Interesting question. A lot, lot to say there, but what I would say on one side is the principles that underpin the franchise model Mm -hmm. have not changed. The keys to using the franchise model successfully have not changed. Franchising's application has developed in an amazing way 
with a wide variety of sectors getting engaged. I mean, back when the early, you know, the 80s and 90s, it was dominated by food service, right? right. It was really thought of, if you're not in the hotel business or the food service business, franchising is kind of this rinky dink little thing, you right. know, and, uh, and, and it, it really has evolved very nicely to aggregate disaggregated uh, markets. For example, you know, Don Dwyer in the home services, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you know the, the Seinfeld episode about I got a guy, right? right. I, you have to, my, my window's not working, but I got a guy, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to let you use my guy because I don't want you to mess up my access to the guy. <laughs> and so everybody has to have a guy locally. But then all of a sudden we start seeing brands evolve that, that people can begin to trust in home services to say, hey, you know, I don't have to find a guy, a man in a truck out here running around. Mm -hmm. it, it, it reminds me of the company that I got involved with about seven years ago. Four founders um, started a company called Zero Res. It was a carpet cleaning franchise um, or a company that they started franchising. And they, they really ran into problems very early with their franchise model, their relationship with their franchisees, the way they really didn't understand the franchise model. And so they were trying to follow kind of what they saw out in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And it was really going badly. I remember I, I spoke in Salt Lake City at a uh, uh, it was a law firm that had uh, a luncheon. And so they invited me to come in and speak on franchising. And th their office was just overrun. It was like, over a hundred people show up and there's people looking through glass cubicles, you know, to uh -huh. see and hear. And, and these, these guys were in the audience and they came up afterward and they're like, man, you, you really love the franchise model, but we hate it. It, it, it is like been painful. It's not working. We, you know, and I was like, well, what business are you in? And they're like uh -huh. carpet cleaning. And I immediately thought to myself, I can't think of anything less sexy uh -huh. than carpet clean. Do I really want to get involved in, in a carpet? But it was really fascinating because I thought it doesn't matter if it's carpet clean. Right. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, the principles are there. Let me find out what's going on. So I worked with them and revamped their model, what they were offering and shifted their mindset around relationship building with your franchise partners who are building your brand locally. And, you know, the company was sold last year with sales of over 150 million. Uh, it's the second largest in the country behind Stanley Steamer, I think mm -hmm. at this point, just went on a massive journey of incredible growth, incredible. And it's a carpet cleaning company. I right. mean, and so I think to answer your question, what, what makes using the franchise model successful is still there. The, the principles that underpin it that evolve revolve around training franchisees that revolve around how you support franchisees that evolve around the role of the franchisor i share this you know image of a sailing ship right the franchisor is in the crow's nest okay the franchisees are down on the deck and imagine that they're they're rowing right they're actually executing the model and and when the franchisees try to climb up in the crow's nest, things go terribly wrong. When the franchisor comes down on the deck, things can go terribly wrong. But that vision, that that perspective the franchisor has of where we're going, how we're going to get there, you know, those are really important. But how do you communicate that down to the deck? Right. right? So communication is such a key pillar. And then the final thing I would say is 
that most people think of the franchise journey as a linear equation, and it's the absolute opposite. The The final outcome of it can be a linear equation at scale, but when you're an emerging franchise brand, the rules of engagement are completely different than when you're rapidly growing. And when you're rapidly growing, the rules of engagement are completely different than when you make it to scale and maturity. And so, so many people look at the mature brands and they try to be an emerging franchisor like the emerging brand mm. in the way they operate, the way they communicate, the way they interact with the market, and they fail. They run into problems. How you operate an emerging brand using the franchise model is vastly different. And so when I developed the curriculum for the Linegar Center, mm -hmm. I did it on the stages in franchising, the early stage. And we just dive into that from the franchisor and the franchisee perspective. And then we get into the growth stage and then the maturity. And then you either decline or you grow again. And so by looking at it in those stages, I think it's a really powerful way to understand how to deploy the model most effectively. It's a dynamic model that's constantly in need of change and adjustment. But if we treat it like a linear equation, things tend to go wrong very quickly. Right. Oh, yeah. And the franchise founder or whoever the leader is, is going to have to adapt, like you're saying, at the different stage that their franchise company is in. You're in a totally different mindset when you're at zero franchises trying to get to your first 10. That's one of the most common questions I get is, Frank, how do I get, how do I sell my first 10? How do I, how do I get my yep. first 12? How do I do that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do this regularly. Matter of fact, just launched a pickleball concept. And um, we, we literally had our FDDs ready to go mm -hmm. on September 3rd. Um, we've signed five regional developers and have 65 units in development. And what are we, six weeks in, seven weeks in? So wow. part of the answer to that is if you're going to use the franchise model, you don't decide today you're going to use it and start selling franchises. When I franchise a concept through Franchise Well, it's four to six months before we ever look the first candidate in the eye. Mm -hmm. You've got to build all the infrastructure needed to support every franchisee. The first franchisee deserves the same thing the 100th franchisee deserves. And so all of that learning management systems, technology platforms, marketing portals and systems, all of that has to be ready and done and documented for that first franchisee. So one, if you don't take the time to do it right and build all that, those first few franchises might be harder to sell because they see you're not ready, mm -hmm. right? You're not ready to support them. Secondly, during that phase, when you're building all that, you should be courting your first franchisees. I like to say you should be signing your first franchise agreements 14 days after your FDD is ready because you should have been cultivating those early adopters while you're building the franchise model. They might be family. They might be friends. They might be customers who said, hey, is, is, is this a franchise concept? Who knows? But you should be cultivating those relationships and, and those early stage franchisees while you're building it so that you come out of the box with momentum, with people signing, people coming on the system. And then that leads into what I think is the most effective way is PR. And I've worked with most of the PR firms that are out there. I helped 
launch one into the franchise community and you know who you are. But I believe that the founder is the story, right? There are some manufactured concepts coming into franchising. Some people with money go into a lab. They design it for the purpose of selling franchises and making money. I call that a manufactured concept and they're they're out there. Mm -hmm. What I like are somebody who's actually an entrepreneur who builds a concept and is successful. That's a story. You want to get that out. So I find that early stage PR is very important. And then the third is stay close to home. I ran into a guy last year. He had spent $250,000 and a year with consultants. They registered in every state. They, they, they had all this money spent and all this work. And he said, it's been a year. We haven't sold a unit. And so I asked him, where, where are you located? He told me. I said, wow, that's a pretty good sized town. How many more of your concept could fit in your town? He said, I've looked at other locations and stuff, but we should have six in the town I'm in. I thought, why didn't you start by putting five more right there <laughs> where they could see it, touch it? Feel? Why were you trying to go across the country right. and launch? So early stage. Take the time to build the infrastructure right so that that first franchisee gets 100% of the value proposition. Secondly, can cultivate those early adopters to go on this journey with you so that they're ready to go right when you launch. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, tell your story, use PR, but keep it in the city you're in or the surrounding cities, but keep it close to home so you don't have to pack a lunch and fly to Hoboken to... to try and get a franchisee on board much better if they can just see it, touch it, feel it. And you can influence them with, with that said, what's your opinion on the amount of company owned locations you, you like a client to have, or you suggest a, an early franchise or have before they franchise their concept? Yeah. You know, the, the school of thought on that has changed over time. Used to be, you would be very well established uh, as a brand and a company before you ever thought, of, you know, rolling right. out franchising. It was really kind of almost frowned upon if you started franchising too early. It's like, you can't have enough <laughs> knowledge. You can't have enough, you know, ability, right? You, you know, how can you possibly be franchising? You know, nobody knows your brand. And yet today, there are any number of examples out there of having no company-owned units and growing. I mean, a success space which uh, is owned by Success Enterprises, success.com. Okay. It's a co-work concept. They have no franchise. They have only, like they have no company owned. Mm -hmm. Their very first proof of concept is a franchisee opening uh, later this week in Flower Mound, you know, Texas, right? And so it's come all the way 360 to where you can literally build a concept and roll it out only through franchisees, no company-owned units. Mm -hmm. To do that, though, you've got to create the incentives for somebody to want to be those early-stage adopters in a model like that. Um, but from a kind of the continuum of, I got none, I got a whole bunch, it really depends on the industry you're in. If you're in an industry that's highly competitive, you're going to think about that very differently than one that's an emerging, right? So as I mentioned, pickleball. Right. And so pickleball is going crazy right now. Right. It's just the founder of, of Dill Dinkers, the concept we just rolled out, he's opened and operating four units in the last year. Right. So we were able to see the proof of concept in finding a location, getting it open, selling memberships, getting members in, holding events. So the full cycle now has evolved through these three locations to where when we rolled out September 1st, 
-hmm. our first discovery day, we had 18 people fly in, boom, in a facility playing pickleball, touch it, feel it, taste it, left, two people signed the next, you know, two weeks later, right? And then we had our second one. And then Sunday and Monday, we just had our third. We had 30 people. (laughs) <laughs> discovery wow. day. So what I'm saying is early stage with just four locations, it's an emerging market with people already out there and we're ready to go, right? If you're in a highly competitive market where there's lots of people out there, you might have to build your model mm-hmm. a little longer, a little deeper in order to get that foundation to take franchising and use it effectively, moving it out from wherever you're located. I like that. That makes sense to me. And I think that some of the founders that I have, you know, I've interacted with over the last, you know, several years where some people have gone wrong is they aren't cash flowing well enough so that they're having to sell franchises to keep the lights on when they do go That's into right. franchising. And that is such a stressful way of doing business. I'll tell you, it, you know, with, with the amount of dry powder sitting in the market right now, no one should be in that position. Yeah. If, if the concept is solid, you should get an investor to support you and do it right. The the franchise landscape is so competitive and most markets are are very competitive, right? The underlying business to go into a knife fight, a gunfight with a knife, right? right? It's like, you know, because I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. There's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't call me or send me stuff and go, hey, this is what I've got. This is what I've done. Do you think I can franchise this? And, And a lot of them, I'm like, you're not ready. You know, you need to build the model further. You need to be farther along. Most of them need to find capital to really do it right. Franchising is not inexpensive. If you've ever played 3D chess, then you can understand just the beginnings of the legal and regulatory environment in franchising. It is not for the faint of heart. With all of the state level, the relationship laws, the business opportunity laws, the exemptions, it, you you cannot just roll out there, although people do, right. and just start, you know, get an FDD together and start selling people franchises. So I, I think that there's a lot of capital looking to come into franchising and to support emerging concepts um, to do them right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have a smaller piece of the pie, but you'll end up with a much bigger pie than if you just bootstrap it and go out there and try to go head to head against portfolio companies out there right. that have a dozen brands and it's definitely a competitive marketplace. Mm, all right. Well, that is segueing to one of the topics I could not wait to get your thoughts on. Uh, the elephant in the franchise room, these PE firms that are starting platforms out of thin air, creating a portfolio yeah. of companies. What are your thoughts on that and how that's changing franchising? It may be obvious to some, but but not all that when you take highly regulated financial companies and they start shifting their investment strategies into a new sector, guess what they bring with them? All of those eyes and ears on that regulatory environment that they're used to. Mm-hmm. They're highly regulated and there's people that are regulating them are going, what are these franchise things? How do those work? What are the rules of engagement over there? Mm-hmm. What, what are the, the financial considerations? You know, you look at how we have now your franchise fees, right? You gotta, you can't recognize the, the income when you get the check. You have to recognize it over the 10-year life of the agreement. We're seeing a lot of influence 
by PEs, not just in buying and building and selling, mm-hmm. but they're bringing a lot more attention. You look at the FTC today and they've been, you could argue, laying dormant around franchising and the offer and sell. They are highly engaged right now and active, asking a lot of questions. Why? I believe it's this this wave of PE and financial firms coming into franchising that are dragging along a lot of eyes and ears on the regulatory, governmental, financial, and otherwise environment. So that's one. On the other side, they're creating a lot of liquidity. You know, I have so many good friends that 1987, mm-hmm. I knew in franchising, the multiples that they were able to, to get when they were ready to, to, to have that transaction just never even imagined could be possible back then, right? Like, and, and some of us have been around a long time and involved in deals not that long ago that were, you know, pennies compared to the deals that are happening now. So I think part of them coming is is it's creating uh, liquidity for uh, different brands and different concepts and and for owners, you mm-hmm. know, you know, can be a, a good thing. There are some challenges. I can count on one hand the number of financial and PE firms that have sent anybody to the Georgetown program or the Leninger Center to say, should we kind of look in and maybe understand this franchise model? I have been an expert witness on several cases, um, and I'm involved in two now because they don't understand the model. And 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 I'll remember one occasion that happened a few years back. You know, financial firm bought a 1,200 unit chain. They told the founder, you know, hey, you can't have any contact with any of the franchisees. Once we buy this, you just you got to go away. Well, he had built the whole company hunting. Drinking, golfing, you know, right. fishing. I mean, this was a, you know, like a lot of franchise systems, a very tight network of owners. And then all of a sudden they told the founder to go away. They put a 30-something-year-old MBA CPA in as the president. And the whole thing just almost collapsed in on itself. Wow. And and the question was like, hey, what's going on here? We got to sue every franchisee individually? Yeah, that's part of the franchise model. Yeah. You know, they had no real understanding of what they they bought this business that was making money, but they didn't understand how it was making the money. They weren't in the underlying business. They were in the franchise business. They hadn't the foggiest idea how to run a franchise company. And so I think that's one of the challenges that we're seeing with litigation that I'm involved with or seeing out there. Are firms that are financially capable truly not understanding how franchising works and how to even take it to the next level? One of the missed opportunities from my perspective is they've got the money. Mm-hmm. They just don't know how to exploit the model, make it even better, bigger. It's just sitting there right in front of them, but they're dealing with all the issues they've created with the communication strategy that they aren't using or the, whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, I, it's a mixed bag. I'll say that for sure. It, well, it's it's a delicate balance, right? Because they've brought the financial backing, which is fantastic. They've brought the professionalism yeah. to franchising. Again, Great plus, but yeah. understanding the franchise relationship and really what made the company tick is the area of opportunity, in my humble opinion, that I think there's the, you know, the gap that needs to be filled. And I'm sure it's going to be filled over time. They're going to recognize it. Well, you know, I, I was recruited by ExxonMobil 2001 to take over their franchising of their convenience store concept on the run. And, you know, what I found there was, again, at the time they were fortune one. After the ExxonMobil merger, they were at Fortune One. They had a very rudimentary understanding of franchise. As a matter of fact, their Exxon 
distributors wouldn't participate in the mobile dealer franchise. And when I looked at it, I said, well, of course they won't. I mean, your distributors fly on their own planes. They have 50, 60 locations. The model was built for a dealer who has one. It looks like indentured servitude to an Exxon distributor. They said, well, can how? what do we do? And so they wouldn't hire me as a consultant. So I had to go as an employee, which was painful because my wife was born and raised in Texas and we had to move to Virginia because that was part of the whole deal. <laughs> but I created a new model, which I refer to as regional developer that spoke specifically to those distributors. It was a separate FDD. It's funny, the, the ExxonMobil attorney looks at me and goes, you can't have two FDDs, can you? You can have as many as you want. Anyway, right. but it's just these misconceptions of the franchise model. Once we launched that, we sold 45 regional developers and converted a thousand locations in five years. They, they then took that entire package and sold it to Kushtard, you know, Circle K, which wasn't, I had nothing to do with that, but that, but we monetized something they were getting zero dollars from mm -hmm. the backcourt. They didn't get a penny only from the fuel. Once we franchised that whole thing, they had this massive income of royalty, which they could then could monetize and ultimately decided to sell. But the point being is that there's tremendous value and benefit in the franchise model that many are scratching the surface of because they don't really understand it, how to use it. Well, why do so many franchisors fail? The ones that there's two statistics I want to talk about. The first one that yeah. just drives me crazy is we've got, you can argue we have 3,000, 4,000 franchisors, whatever the number is. But yeah. then we have anywhere between three and 400 that start every year and three and 400 that go away every year. Why are we not getting anywhere in the 20 years I've been in franchising? It's the same number. I was trying to remember, I believe the number was in the 600. In 1987, you know, when I first got involved, I believe the IFA told me when I went to the first convention, you know, and Bill Rosenberg, Fred DeLuca. I mean, it was the who's who wow. of from Bill Marriott, whatever. The you Mount know, Rushmore franchising. It was. It really <laughs> was. And, you you know, I'm a new guy walking in there. We're just I literally hung out and talked to all those guys and, and became good friends. Uh, matter of fact, I consulted for Fred DeLuca for about 10 years, actually. Um but anyway, it was very small and it was a very tight group. But I, if I recall, it was around six to 700 franchisors. And so today at the IFA, we're 1,300 members. But then if you look at Fran Data, like you said, three to 4,000. Right. Still not that pronounced a growth over that period of time. And, and you're right. We are seeing, I believe, more franchisors fail. And it, in my opinion, goes back to... Uh, what I was talking about earlier, most go into it not prepared to support it. They go into it thinking like the mature brand mm -hmm. in the just in their franchise. Well, if that's Subway charges X, I'm a new sandwich concept. I'm going to charge X. And I'm like, that does not work, right? Right. You know, you can't benchmark against the ones that are at a different part of their life cycle in that early stage. It's so important to get momentum and get your early adopters to help you perfect the model. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm teaching it, it's, it's like you don't want to make pancakes till you get the recipe right. And when you think you have it right, sell 10 franchises and perfect the model. Now you can go make pancakes. Most come out of the box with what they really want to be selling when they're at scale. 
And that just is, is really hard to sustain as an early concept. You need really strong partners engaged with you to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what you got right, what you didn't, and get all of that really running well. And then you can grow very rapidly. Mm -hmm. You know, the Achilles heel of so many brands, they get one open and operating, it's doing well, and they open a second one, and, and then they start franchising. And now all of a sudden, they're flying all over the country trying to pick sites in markets that they're not familiar with. And they're trying to help the franchisee hire people in different states with different rules. And they just get completely bogged down with all of this busy work that should have already been automated and built into the system. But if you are taking less than four to six months to prepare to launch a franchise, I would submit your chances for success mm -hmm. are going to be slim because you need a learning management system that has documented everything a franchisee needs to know, or you're not going to have consistent customer experience. You need to have a technology platform that's pulling in all that data to help you make evidence-based decisions. But if you're not sticky and you're not pulling that in, franchisees don't want to share their financials with you. And it's too competitive. There's too many companies using the franchise model very successfully and, and you're going up against them. And the number of people buying franchises from the data that I've seen hasn't expanded all that much. So you got more people fishing mm -hmm. for the same number of fish. And there's a lot of folks that have a lot to offer that make it very competitive for emerging brands. How much does, how much does founder mindset play a factor into the success of their launch? Yeah. And, and, and in the early and, stage, and right? And when you think about the life cycle of a franchise, in that early stage, the founders are the key in many cases, right? They have the story. They were there. You know, when I think about the pickleball, you know, Will and his wife, you know, went and rented a warehouse and they had to figure out the courts and the net. They just, there's a real cool story there. She left her job first, so he still had benefits. And then he left his job. And I mean, the founders are critical until you get to what I call rapid growth, right? Mm -hmm. During this emerging stage, they need to be involved with every site selection, every franchisee selection, every decision, and they need to be flexible and open. This is one of the challenges for founders, that mindset like, this is my model, we do it my way. There's so much to learn in that early stage before you lock it down. When you get to rapid growth, mm -hmm. we got to lock it down or you won't be able to keep up with demand. And if there's more demand than you can fill, somebody else will. So yes. that first stage, founders got to be in it. But this is what I always told Fred DeLuca, the founder of, of Subway. I said, Fred, do you know what your genius was? And he said, no, I have no idea, honestly, how this <laughs> even all happened. But uh, I said, you know when to be the founder. See, I don't know if people know it's not, but, you know, Milford, Connecticut, the home, right? You know, Bick Lane or whatever it is. Uh -huh. I mean, that's where Subway is, right? But Fred spent most of his time in Florida, Fort Lauderdale. But whenever store sales started to flatten out, same store sales started flattening out, he flew back in to Milford. He was in his office from 6 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night, meeting with everybody on the staff, talking to the franchisees, saying, what is causing this, right? He inserted himself back as a founder, that founder mindset. That's where Jared came from. I think people should care that, that our product is healthy, right? The $5 foot long, right? When you look at the history of the flattening out and then the reemergence on the subway, mm -hmm. he would reinsert himself 
any time until he figured out what was causing this. And, and then he would enact the change that's needed. And this is the formula for success in franchising, in my opinion. You have to monitor your performance. And when you're not getting the performance that you're expecting, what market force is causing? Is it competition? Is it product mix? Is it pricing? Is it you know weak franchisees who are, aren't able to deliver on the value? What is it? And you've got to change to fix it. I, I ask in my classes, what change management program or model do you use in franchising? It's like crickets. Like nobody right. in franchising uses change. There's nine really amazing change management models that exist that have been proven over time. And, and you've got to be able to like say, wow, for this situation, we're going to use this change management model and we're going to fix this, right? And you're just constantly building and growing. And that founder mindset is a critical part along that journey. But the founders, when you're growing rapidly and they're coming in and changing the formula, changing the recipe, they just make everybody mad and slow down growth. And Fred, he would just go to his compound in Florida and get out of the way. It was genius. So that leads me to the the, the second statistic in, in that, you know, 84% of all franchisors never get to 100 units. Then Ben, is, that yeah. the, is it the same reason why the founders are either getting in the way or they're not re-emerging themselves uh, or are they not putting people in place? Why the statistics so high that people can't get to 100 units? Yeah, that's that's a really uh, interesting statistic in an industry where the large brands, everybody knows them. Yes. And they seem to attribute kind of franchising to, you know, one of my partners in a couple of businesses, uh, founder of Remax, right? You look at Remax, it's, I mean, thousands of franchises, 140 countries. And they say like, wow, you know, how does that happen? And I'm still at 18 franchises, you know? So there's, there's a lot going on to unpack in that statistic as to why. Firstly, I would say there are many franchisors who have no interest in being uh, the next Remax or, you know, whatever it is, right? Orange Theory, Five Guys, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. Thousand plus locations. They just are happy. I, I had this couple that I've known for 30 plus years beautiful family, incredible business. I think maybe got to 50 franchisees. I don't know, 55 or something like that, right? All their franchisees successful making money, all very happy. Them, their staff, everybody, they get called every week. Somebody wants to buy the franchise, you know, mm -hmm. throw money. They didn't get over, you know, the, the, the average. Why? They didn't have the desire. That's one of the beauties of being the owner of a concept is you can decide, you know what? I'm really happy at the group that I have, the size that I have, my position in the market. And you can do that for as long as you want. Now, in their case, the beauty was also that when they got to the point where they were ready to make a change, there were lots of people willing to offer them a significant you know, opportunity to, to move on. So that's the first is it might just be that somebody isn't interested. The second is that we live in a capitalist society, right? And we live in a fairly transparent capitalist society. So it's hard to hide much of what you're doing or how you're doing it from anybody else. Mm -hmm. So we can see what you're doing and then I can come along and do it. And maybe I got more capital to do it better and faster. And so if you're that founder, who's not looking for an investor, not going to support financially the growth of your model, you're likely going to see others coming around you and growing and maybe 
beginning to limit your growth potential because they see the success you're having and they're willing to invest in in growing it faster, farther, et cetera. I think there's also people who are franchising concepts that probably shouldn't be franchised. I mean, they, they might be better off. If, if the franchisee paying you a royalty can't be profitable, mm -hmm. then the only one making money is the franchisor. And there are concepts like that um, to where the people that bought the franchise are struggling. I mean, they're working hard every day, but they're barely paying the bills, right? They, you know, it goes back to they bought themselves a job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a concept you have to ask yourself, should that have been offered as a franchise? And, and, and when I look at concepts, one of the first things I look at is the juice has to be worth the squeeze. If I can't see clearly that someone paying you a royalty on top of operating this business and can still be very financially successful, you shouldn't be franchising that business. The purpose of franchising is not to create jobs. In some cases, it could be low-paying jobs, right? Right, right? That is really it's it's really to give somebody an opportunity to own their own business that has the potential to, to be very profitable and sustainable. So I think that's another piece. And, and then I'd say another element is that just like marriage, it is much easier to get into it than it is to get out of it. Mm. Right. Even if you decide I'm going to go down the path and I'm going to get with the attorney and I'm going to do the audit and I'm going to get my documentation together and I'm going to roll it out. You might hate it. Right. You might say, I don't really like this, but you've got 10 year commitments. You know, you've got to live up to those obligations. So it sits there and kind of goes along. And, and there are cases where, you know, this has happened, where franchisors decided they didn't want to franchise anymore. Right. And they had to just kind of sit and let, you know, work through their agreements. And and so there, there's, a, there's a whole lot there that goes into that, that number. But I would say that great concepts starved for capital is probably one of the largest contributors to that number. Yeah. Good concepts where they are not willing uh, to give up control mm -hmm. or take on, and because you know, if you're looking for an investor in a privately held entity, it's hard to get investment from a minority investor, right? That it's like the risk is so high that it almost, you know, you, you got to be willing to give up control if you want to get the horsepower to really drive your concept through the market and be competitive in many cases. Sure. So, Ben, that leads me to the next thing then. How does an emerging founder? who is bootstrapping it, you know, they're well capitalized, but how yeah. are they able to win in this current marketplace where it's more crowded and we're back to private equity that has, you know, the horsepower and the money behind it. Yeah. How does a, an yeah. emerging founder like me 20 years ago do it? How, how can <laughs> I succeed in the, in the big boy uh, game here? Well, you know, it's, uh, I think it was Warren Buffett uh, talks about be a wonderful company. Right. Talk about his investment strategy. Well, why did you decide to buy Dairy Queen? Why did you buy, you know, this or that? Right. And, and he often talks about they're wonderful companies. So first thing I would say is no matter who you are and, and what your concept is, think about how can I be a wonderful company? How can I be attractive to somebody looking at my company? Do they see strife and lots of issues or do they see a team and camaraderie? Do they see fun, engagement? Do they see us making good financial decisions? I was talking with a good friend of mine whose wife bought a franchise. I know the franchise, I know the concept, it's an emerging brand. And just a, a really brief example, they say, hey, you know, we got to get signage for your location, honey. And so they get the, the sign kit and everything. And, and it says, oh, here's our vendor for the signage. And then here's your quote, you know, 
and it was over twenty thousand dollars. Well, my friend, you know, says, "I, I, that's crazy. I mean, they're a long way away from us, and all this stuff." So he goes to a local company and says, "Here's all the criteria. Here's the sign. Here's everything. I need it for this. How much would it be?" And he says, "Installed, you know, exactly to those specifications, ten thousand hmm. dollars." Now that's not a wonderful company because right. that franchisee is taking ten grand out of their working capital for a sign. And and so he called the founder and said, that sign, you're you're requiring me. Well, we're the franchisor. We have to maintain the brand. He will build it the exact same way. You're mm-hmm. in an early stage. Yes, yeah, someday with your subway and you've got, that's what I mean by what stage are you in that mindset? And, and he, he would not give in one iota. To me, that's not a sign of a wonderful company, mm-hmm. not listening to your franchise. Who cares about the sign, right? That's not how he's not in the sign business. He's in the franchise business. And if we can get a sign or a uniform or a whatever less expensively, mm-hmm. why would we take that off the table for a franchise? So, again, I know it's probably know that, burning up a bunch of time. That's on a great example. That's a great example of how you can adapt based on the stage that you're in. This there's things that you can do and yeah. when you're an early stage franchisor and as we continue to grow and develop and we can save our franchisees because of volume, then we're going to require that you use our vendor. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, think to yourself, how many director of procurements have you met across franchising in your, your mm-hmm. days, right? You know, the low hanging fruit in, in the franchise relationship is reduced cost of goods. I mean, you're buying at scale. And many franchisors focus on the brand and maybe taking some fees back from all that network mm-hmm. instead of somebody full time every day driving down the cost. Every franchisee's paying, they wouldn't be asking, "What am I getting for my royalties?" If they were seeing their bottom line increase because we're actively engaged in driving down their cost. Yet I never hear people talk about that in franchise. I don't run into directors of procurement at franchise companies. I don't see franchise leaders thinking this way. Huge missed opportunity. Sure. What's been your biggest surprise in franchising over your entire career? The resiliency, I guess, you know, and and no one's ever asked me that question. I've done dozens of these interviews and con podcasts where no one's ever asked me that. And I'm just like top of mind. Resiliency, I think, describes from 1987, I think about the people who I knew then and the journey they went on, what they went through, what they overcame. I've known thousands and thousands of franchisees personally. I've been a franchisee, although my wife has sworn me not to buy any more franchises. <laughs> not doing that anymore. I keep buy, like want to buy all my clients' franchises. But anyway, I, I've known all, the, but they they overcome. Right. They get up early, they stay late, they, they get in there and they figure it out. And in some cases, if the franchisor is watching and listening, mm-hmm. the whole network benefits from what that franchisee is doing. Resiliency, I think, is really at the core, not just of franchisees, franchisors, but the model, the model against you know regulatory schemes and folks who would seek to break it down. It's It's been incredibly resilient. So I think wow. that's probably the most surprising thing that I've been in it since 1987 and never had any interest in leaving it because I just love it. I love seeing the average person Mm -hmm. partner become more successful than they could have 
had they done it on their own. It wow. just, that's an incredible thing to be a part of. It, it sure is. And I can agree with that. I think the resilience was one of the bigger surprises for me too. Some of the franchisees that I remember that came into the Discovery Day and you just knew they yeah. were going to win. Like they were going to run through a brick wall if they had to. And there were some people who I knew didn't have the resilience and, and you know, they maybe didn't make it. Or sometimes... We thought someone was going to do well and they didn't and vice versa. That's that's the other thing that surprised me about franchising is that I, I never really had it down perfectly to be able to identify yeah. who was going to be successful. Before we get too far, we're already an hour in and I, I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> we need to talk about franchise well and talk about your company. Yeah. What are the services sure. that you provide? And let's um let's let's get into that a bit. Yeah. So you know, at this point in my life, everybody's figured out how old I am, but um <laughs> you know, at this point in my life. I'm very, very blessed to be doing just exactly what I want to be doing. My teaching, you know, I'm very passionate about empowering people with the knowledge of the franchise model. So I'm, I'm really thankful that that Dave and Gail asked me to to build the the curriculum and and teach at the Leonard Center. So, you know, all of that is great. Um, but franchise well is a family business. My wife, my son, my two daughters are all fully engaged, you know, in franchise well, among other consultants and, and folks that we have. But but we're a small, I call it a boutique uh, consulting practice, um, really on, you know, only franchising, right? And and so a few things there. And, and because of our size and our interests, we only take on a few things at a time. So we're, we're not uh, a, a volume shop by any means. We're very thoughtful about who we want to be engaged with and what we want to be doing. And so seems like every year or so we're engaged with an entrepreneur with an amazing concept that we architect the franchise strategy and bring it to market with them. Uh, we always go alongside as an investor with them. We don't get involved in any concepts. We're, we're not shareholders or active in the business with them because we don't want to sell them a service and then good luck. God bless you. We're all counting on you. We're, we're more into building brands our role will evolve over time and that allows us to to go work with you know another concept so that's one two is on the investment side you know as i mentioned working with dave uh you know he has his uh family office now uh, area 15 ventures made two acquisitions and uh you know been able to work with him on those and participate and and uh, so that's a lot of fun looking when you've got you know, someone like Dave, who's got you know, tremendous expertise, obviously building an iconic brand and franchising, but but also a lot of capital to deploy. You know, you begin to look and see what's out there and see where there are opportunities to make uh, smart investments and build some global brands that, that maybe uh, wouldn't have gotten there otherwise. So part of it's, you know, looking for and acquiring brands that we feel like can be scaled quickly and grow. And then otherwise, I spend a a fair bit of time just fielding calls, if you will, from folks that have questions. A really great person reached out to me last night. He was driving home from the Dill Dinkers uh, uh, Discovery Day, and you know, and she's with a large franchise system, and you know, something came up, and she says frustrated, you know, and like I don't understand, you know, and, and so she calls, and I just love talking with people about franchising. My wife says, you know, most people charge for their time. You just keep talking to everybody, you know. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I love it. I love that people want to solve problems and want to use franchising well. And, and so I, I, I love just 
visiting with folks about franchising. Your passion. So anyway, it keeps me plenty busy at this point in my life. Yeah, your passion comes through loud and clear. Uh, ben, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and ask you about your services and get some consulting, how can they find you? Gosh, we're, we're pretty old school. We've got a we got a website, uh, you know, franchisewell.com. You could nice. certainly go there and, and you know, or you can email me, ben at franchisewell.com. I am not, you put my name in Google. I am not hard to find. You can, you can find me and nobody screens my calls or my email. Everything comes to me and I, I might screen a few, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm not hard to get a hold of and, uh, love to hear where people are up to and, and what their interests are in franchising. And more than anything, I'm probably, I'd say a pretty significant connector. A lot of times things are coming to me that I'm like, you know, this is who you need to talk to. This is where you should go. This is what you should be thinking about. I love to connect people. I've had incredible vendor relationships over the years of folks who can help people with different things. So happy to have anyone reach out. Love to talk to you about franchising. My favorite, favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Ben, this has been such a great conversation. I hate to finish here, but I, I, I always finish with what I call the tip jar. And uh, because the franchise community is just so generous, this has been an entire hour of a tip jar that you have stuffed full of great advice. But if there was somebody, say an entrepreneur who wants to franchise their concept, what's the best piece of advice you give them before they do it? Get educated. Start with education. You really go into any conversation, whether it's with an attorney, a consultant, an accountant, another franchisor. If you don't know what the word franchise means, you literally don't know what that word means because it has a definition. If you don't know what the key pillars that underpin the franchise model are, man, I, I would say take the introduction to franchising online course at DU, you know, the Leninger Center. You can just go sign up and just you'll learn what the word means and, and, and where did it come from? Just start educating yourself on franchising because what you'll hear from people working in franchising is their experience and and how they've used it and what they've done, which may or may not be the right application for what you're doing or what you need to do. Quite frankly, I've had the sad (laughs) experience of having an emerging franchisor come to me with their FDD and I take a look at it and I find another franchisor's name that they didn't scrub out of it throughout the document, right? This is not how you you should be franchising. You should be educating. So start with some education. Come to a class. Uh, take an online class. The IFA has a whole suite of classes. I, I, I That's my tip jar for an emerging. Just, you know, talk to whoever. Network. That's all great. But try to educate yourself on franchising because that's the business you're going to be in. Not making cookies. Not selling cars. Not kicking soccer balls. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what your franchisees will be doing. You're going to be in the franchise business. And it's a very different business than whatever it is you're doing underlying. Yes, sir, Ben. That was a fantastic finish to an incredible episode. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. My pleasure. Great to see you as always. Thank you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host Frank Fumey, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its host do not offer professional advice or endorsements. 
and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.